it's important to say that the people in Janine don't call it a massacre. They call it a battle. It's the Battle of Janine. Um, and it's a significant source of pride um, within the militant movements. And... The Electronic Intifada. The Electronic Intifada. The Electronic Intifada. This is the Electronic Intifada podcast. I'm Nora Barrows-Friedman. And I'm Asa Winstanley. Welcome back to the Electronic Intifada podcast. As we reported, Israel withdrew its troops from Janine refugee camp on July 5th after a two-day offensive, the largest in the occupied West Bank in two decades. At least 13 Palestinians, including four children, were killed during the incursion. The official Palestinian news agency Wafa reported that more than 140 people were injured during the invasion, 20 of them critically. On July 3rd, thousands of residents fled during the aerial and ground assault, which wreaked widespread destruction in the camp, rebuilt after much of it was raised during a massacre perpetrated by the Israeli military in 2002. Today, we're taking a deep dive into the context around what happened in Janine and what the Palestinian resistance fighters were able to achieve in defense of their community. Joining us are two friends of the EI podcast, Abdel Jawad Omar, a lecturer in the Philosophy and Cultural Studies Department at Palestine's Birzeit University, and John Elmer, a journalist and researcher. He also co-hosts The Brief Podcast with me. He spent years as a reporter inside Palestine covering the situation in Janine and in Gaza in the early years of the Second Intifada. Welcome back, both of you, to the Electronic Intifada podcast. Thanks for having us. Thank you. Uh, Abdul Jawad, let's start with you. This came after a series of settler pogroms across the occupied West Bank, assisted by the Israeli army, who are settlers in uniforms. Uh, can you situate this latest rampage in Janine for us, what it's been like on the ground in Palestine over the last few weeks? Well, I mean, uh, the ground assault comes uh, in a very, or a highly politicized moment within Israel itself. Um, the settlers are pushing for a wide-scale military invasion of the Virginia refugee camp, and they're in the government. So there's a very political, or there's a very political dimension to why um, this operation happened now, at least from the perspective of internal Israeli dynamics and antagonisms. Um, but it also has to do with the fiddling out and the containment of the Lion Den's movement in Nablus which was the major concern for Israelis in the past couple of months. Um, Nablus, as you know, we've spoken about this, I think, before, but Nablus is in the crossroad of much of the settlements in the north of the West Bank, and therefore it poses more of a risk for the everyday life of settlers. And um, the Israeli military and special forces and intelligence were more focused on what's going on in Nablus rather than Janine. Janine is relatively a free zone from settlements. It has some settlements, but they're far away from the center of Janine itself or the refugee camp, which means um, that Nablus was uh, the, the major concern for Israeli security establishment. And after a lot of pressure, they were able at least to prevent the establishment of a self-defense zone in the old city of Nablus, uh, in the likes of what's happening in Janine or the Janine's refugee camp to be more precise. Um, so yeah, this is the context. This is why it's happening now. And even the programs that you spoke about actually were part of the settlement's pressure on the government 
to place more military pressure on the Palestinians and to engage in more wide assault on the Palestinian society, including within Janine. So, I mean, that's the, that's the basic context of what was happening at this moment, yeah. And um, John, you were in Janine in 2002. Tell us about that massacre and the resistance operations that fighters engaged in, why it matters to talk about what happened 21 years ago in order to understand what happened uh, this past week, this past month, especially um, as Abdel Jawad said in, in Nablus as well. Yeah, I mean, I think Janine has been um, a, a focal point of resistance for the entire um, history of the Israel-Palestine conflict, going back to the Arab Revolt. Izzedine al-Qassam was based out of Janine during the Arab Revolt. Um, the people that live in Janine were uh, the Janine refugee camp are all um, um, exiles from 1948, um, living in a half a square kilometer, um, densely populated area in the north of the West Bank. Um, it's an agricultural um, city, the green city, city of greenery, um, and it has a history of resistance. And that resistance came to the fore in particularly in the second intifada, um, as many militants were um, the basis uh, of the uh, uprising in many ways was in Janine um, and dispatched fighters um, throughout Israel. Um, during the campaign of suicide bombings that were um, extremely effective against the Israelis. Um, in 2002, the Israelis mounted um, an operation to retake the West Bank, um, Operation Defensive Shield. It wasn't just um, Janine. It was also, of course, uh, pretty famously uh, in the old city of Nablus. Um, but what happened to the Israeli army in Janine in 2002 is the kind of thing that, um, you know, songs are written about and um, people will talk about um, for generations to come because um, instead of fighting or lobbing artillery or dropping bombs from the air, um, the Israelis actually attempted to go into the Janine refugee camp and um, that had been previously a no-go territory. Um, and so the fact that they showed up on the ground ready to fight was something that Palestinians had always kind of asked for, right? Like a fair fight. Don't just drop bombs from the sky, come in and fight us. And when they did, um, they basically the death toll was one to one for Israeli and IDF fighters. Most famously, um, the IDF was drawn into an ambush by a teenager in, a, in an alleyway um, and 13 Israeli soldiers were killed at once and it was a spectacular ambush and it was being watched on live feed by the Israeli um, military command. And so uh, when they watched the humiliation happening, um, basically all the commanders were there and and urged um, an intensification of the um, of the attack on Janine. And that's basically what uh, introduced the world to the D9 Caterpillar bulldozer, where basically Israel um, had to lead, their fighters had to be led by um, these massive uh, bulldozers, armored bulldozers. Um, and they basically wiped out, like erased the middle of the camp um, in Janine after that. Um, and there was some talk by the PA after that it was a massacre because people believed that um, that these houses were dropped on top of fighters and on top of people. Um, but as it turned out, the fighters were mostly, uh, many of them were able to escape. 
um, and people were able to move around because it's their own community, their own land, their own territory. Um, civilians, as well as fighters, were able to move around and move out of the way. Some people talk about being, you know, in houses with 200, 300 people in a house because everybody moved from one house to the next. Um, but that kind of um, control or, or um, territorial um, control by the Palestinians um, really set the Israelis back um, at that time. The, um, like I said, the death toll one to one in a guerrilla battle with a superior um, armed force is significant. And so I, I think that the it's important to say that the people in Janine don't call it a massacre. They call it a battle. It's the Battle of Janine. Um, and it's a significant source of pride um, within the militant movements. And whenever um, these kind of incidents come up where Israel goes into Janine, of course, everybody talks about it. Um, the fighters are, you know, ha have that uh, esprit de corps in them from that moment. And 2002 in the Janine camp was a real turning point for the Palestinian resistance. Yeah, well... On that, let's talk about Israel's military objectives, uh, such as they were, and why the Palestinian armed factions are saying now that Israel's operation in Janine in the refugee camp was a failure. Um, the Israeli defense minister, Yoav Gallant, told military reporters that the army had, quote, fully achieved its objectives. Um, he said that an explosive workshop was destroyed and the military had secured the ability for occupation forces to move through the camp during future operations. Um, our colleague Maureen Murphy wrote that, quote, keen to present the invasion as a tactical success, the military and Shin Bet, Israel's domestic intelligence agency, said that thousands of weapons, including ammunition, and materials for making explosives were confiscated during the operation. Uh, Israel estimates there to be some 300 fighters in Janine refugee camp, but during the raid, its forces only seized 10 IEDs, improvised explosive devices, 24 rifles and eight handguns. So, I mean, this is according to their account, uh, suggesting that the military didn't make as big of a dent in the resistance's capacity as its spokesperson claimed. That's what our colleague Maureen wrote. Um, John, first of all, and then maybe Abdul Jawad, uh, you can chime in. Um, can you talk about the status of the Janine brigades and their military capabilities and what this says about Israel's objectives? Yeah, I mean, if we if we draw this back, right, the the um, the increasing activity in Janine goes back a couple of years now. But even if we just look at the past couple of weeks to a month, um, there was a series of raids that were thwarted by uh, the Janine brigades, by intelligence, um, counterintelligence that saw uh, Mr. Avim like death squads um, dressed as Palestinian civilians coming in in, you know, various types of vehicles, milk trucks in one case, um, and they were exposed and the shootout, uh, they weren't able to enter the camp to carry out their operations. And then last week or two weeks ago, maybe it was, if we remember, they went into the camp with a bunch of armored vehicles and those armored vehicles were dismantled, blown up by roadside bombs, and then sort of famously dragged 
like towed through the city by other Israeli armored vehicles. And those kind of symbols are really potent. When I was yeah, in- Yeah, that was a real sort of Keystone Cops moment, to be honest. Yeah. The, the, you know, there was this massive armored vehicle that was really immobilized and was just sitting there prone for a long period. I mean, you can see in the videos for a long period. Just, on fire, yeah. <laughs> on fire. Yeah. Well, there was multiple pop vehicles shots like that. Yeah. yeah, and then the vehicles, they, they'd blown up several, um, as many as seven different vehicles were hit by bombs and parts of the vehicles were all over Janine. The kids were going around carrying wheelbarrows with uh, carrying trailers with all of the parts and Israel kind of famously never leaves anymore. They used to never leaves their uh, vehicles behind. So when I was in South Lebanon after the 2006 uh, July war, the the Lebanese, the, the first thing that they would always say is like, because you could tell on the hillside how far the tanks had made it up the hill and then disabled and then dragged back down the hill by other tanks. And you could see the tracks dug in the ground. And of all the kind of stories to tell about the war, people were always, that was always kind of the first one that they would laugh at because the spectacle of it to watch these disabled vehicles be dragged through town um, that that was, to my mind, of course, the as Abdul Jawad said, the beginning, um, the the settler pressure on an operation in Janine has been significant. But this kind of humiliation of of watching their vehicles be dragged through town is that's the kind of thing as it was in two thousand two that spurs um, the the sort of call to action to, to being humiliated by the resistance and. Um, you know, the uh, those weapons tallies that you read, I, I didn't see those guns. They they had the IDF put out multiple videos of like guns on the table kind of thing after a raid that you see. Um, and, and they didn't even have receivers like the triggers weren't there for the guns. It was it was barrel stocks, butt stocks. Um, it was like wires. And then there was like so it sounds like of- it wasn't even weapons. It was weapons parts. Weapons parts, yeah, and then a box of pipe bombs, which are are made in kitchens, right? Our Palestinians make them in their kitchen. So it's like you see on the one hand that they didn't capture the actual weapons that are in Janine, which are significant. And we can talk about that, why that is later when we talk about the PA. Um, but they clearly didn't get those guns. But then on the other hand, they're showing you that basically this is a pure guerrilla movement building their own weapons to fight for their own refugee camp. And if you look at those two and put them together, you it's difficult to see how you could call that a successful operation. It is true that they did go deeper into the camp than they have in 20 years. Um, and they did need bulldozers to, to pave, to dig up the roads on the way in to do that. Um, so in some senses, they were able to do that. And that's what they're bragging about, because for all the last two years, when they talked about operations in the Janine refugee camp, they weren't in the camp. They were on the outskirts of the camp, um, you know, like where Shireen was shot, was on the outskirts of the camp. They weren't able to actually penetrate the camp. So in this sense, they did that, um, but they came under fierce resistance Um you know, people talked about the roadside bombs being significant, well-placed. The Israelis um, were unable to have freedom of movement in the way that they wanted. Everything had to be, um, they were protected and moved uh, extremely slowly. In the 2002 war, uh, they were moving 50 meters a day. 
Um, that's how long it took to penetrate through the resistance lines. Abdul Jawad, what do you make of the uh, Janine Brigade's military capabilities and the uh, the claimed military successes of the uh, Israelis in this uh, particular invasion? Yeah, I mean, I think I, I do agree with John um, almost completely in the sense of um, there's a big, big over-exaggeration of these tactical successes. Like, I can't, like, emphasize this more. Um, and we'll, I'll talk about why, even on in terms of the movement of the army itself, because the army, when it entered Janine refugee camp, was actually avoiding close combat with the resistance fighters. So they wanted a battle, or they wanted a penetration of the camp without a battle, which meant using or utilizing Air Force. It meant also... Uh, using the sniping power that it ha they have, using grenades, but they want it from a distance and they were always avoidant of any form of engagement in close to close uh, or, um, you know, combat that is very close, very intimate between you and the resistance. And the resistance itself also played it well because it actually avoided clashes from a distance in large. So it, it actually waited this out. It did not engage when it was not necessary to engage and only engaged in, in when the Israeli military entered in certain specific points within the camp. And when the Israelis were withdrawing, which was like the weaker point of their whole operation, which actually led to the killing of one soldier eventually. So you had the situation where Israel was basically utilizing um, remote control warfare while also touting its um, um, you know, infantry entering the, the camp. So that's one element. And the second element, what John said, which is a D9, and it's trying to take out all forms of IEDs through um, taking out the whole streets so they can actually enter and penetrate the camp. And the third component is that, um, what tactical successes? I mean, capturing some parts of weapons or, I don't know, reaching out. Uh, I, I'm not trying to say that there's no relative success. There's always relative success in the sense that you've entered, you know more about the resistance, its capabilities, you have more intelligence, you can redesign your operations. There's a lot of stuff that goes into this, and I'm not saying anything like that, but you touted, one, you placed 1,000 soldiers in what is supposed to be a two-day campaign to retain um, authority uh, over the camp, and you basically failed. And not only you failed, you actually provided another spectacle of humiliation in the eyes of the Palestinian people. So because most people have read this as a success for uh, the Janine Brigades, as a success for the military resistance of the camp, as a success for this sovereign space that is now also a haven for a lot of the Palestinians who are wanted from other parts of the West Bank, uh, who have conducted operations, or who, who go for the refugee camp to get cover and to get safety from Israeli arrest or assassinations. So in many ways, I think um, this is the start of a new chapter in the military engagement. I'm not saying this is the end of it, but I think at least at this critical point and juncture, I think the Israelis uh, are over-exaggerating uh, their successes. The second element, I'm just gonna speak very fast on it, is that the way that actually we designed their objectives from the beginning, it was very, very kind of ambivalent, no? Because in the start of the campaign, it was one thing, as it rolled, it was another thing. Um, at the start of the campaign, it was the capturing of resistance fighters, the killing of the resistance fighters. Slowly, it moves into these small tactical gains. Slowly, they try to reframe it through the IDF, the IDF spokesperson in a different, uh, uh, in different elements and different lights. 
um, and trying to present it as some big success. Even Netanyahu went to the, I think, Salem cross point, if I'm not wrong, or the checkpoint, or he was close to the operation taking pictures. So in many ways, I think that you can see how the Israeli military tried to navigate the changing of their objectives as the battle continued. And as they were sitting there as, you know, um, uh, fatigued, tired, nothing much to do, uh, and not able to really truly engage in the resistance in the heart of the camp itself. So I think in many ways, uh, you had, yeah, you had a new symbol of victory again, uh, without many casualties on the Palestinian side or the resistance side. And with a lot of uh, success in terms of the risk in maintaining the capacity to resist and the cap capacity to engage with the Israeli military. And I think this is even different than 2002 for me. Like uh, John talked a lot about the experience in 2002. It's a bit different in a sense of the use and utilization of the IEDs, um, the ability to engage uh, the Israeli military at specific points uh, where the Israeli military is stretched out or is in a weak uh, position. Um, the avoidance of battle when it's not necessary. So there's a lot of these elements um, that is going on, I think, within the camp, which shows some sort of tactical maturity on the part of the resistance and the brigades. That I don't want to like over-exaggerate, but I think it does exist and we can see it in terms of their performance um, in, the, in the battle in the past two days. Yeah. John, did you have anything to add to that? Um, you know, no, talking, I think that yeah. I think that's that's right. And I think one of the things that's important to note is that, you know, people talk about this being a new generation of resistance fighters. It's important to note that the um, the last generation of resistance fighters were assassinated. They were jailed. Um, they were, you know, the assassination campaign in Janine alone ran 20, 25 deep in each organization, wiping out the top leadership. Um, the, the top leadership of the fighters, as it appears on the ground in Janine right now, are, are in their late teens and early 20s. Um, so if this is a new generation of fighters, they're already... Uh, multiple years in their short lives um, into learning these lessons that were, you know, passed down from their, um, from their brothers and uh, from the previous fights. Let's uh, take a look at the Palestinian Authority. Uh, last time we had Yuan Abdel Jawad in February, you talked about the PA's ongoing and entrenching role as a subcontractor of Israel's settler colonial project. Uh, this past week in Janine, we saw the PA abandon Palestinians, uh, just as it did during the recent settler pogroms elsewhere in the occupied West Bank. Tell us about uh, the legitimacy of the PA at this point. Um, and, you know, of course, Asa wrote a couple days ago um, a piece in, in which he quoted Netanyahu saying, we need the PA. It does our job for us, uh, et cetera. So what can you make of the PA's role at this point? I mean, I, I don't think uh, the PA is only abandoning the camps or abandoning the protection of the Palestinian people. I think it's deeper than that. It's 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 a it's an active, at least in parts of it, it's an active active participant in the counterinsurgency campaign. So um, this is at least we need to like place that firmly because it's not simply not doing anything. It's actually doing a lot. Um, that's on the one hand, and when it comes to the internal antagonism, yeah. we saw it break down in the refugee camp in the funerals of the martyrs when some of the leaders attempted to come and uh, speak uh, and pay con condolences to the people. But 
uh, they, he, they were met with screams of people, they were shut down and they were kicked out from the funerals. So it already tells you, um, you know, what legitimacy. I don't think that there's a legitimacy uh, in the eyes of the vast majority of the Palestinians when it comes to the current leadership. Um, now, the danger of this, as I say it, is that the Israelis are also saying the same thing. No, they, they're, they're placing uh, the onus of blame, at least the Hasbara, the pro-Zionist, on this breakdown of legitimacy in the PA, but they don't see how they feed into it. They don't see how they are part of the process of delegitimizing the PA. Historically speaking, by not engaging in negotiations, um, currently speaking, by pushing the PA to be more active in counterinsurgency. So the PA is under these two pressures, a societal pressure to protect, a societal pressure to also, if you want, actually abandon not do anything, just stay there, um, not being active in intelligence gathering, not spreading rumors, not trying to buy out fighters, not trying to arrest or attempting to arrest some of these fighters. So a lot of the people are just telling them, just sit in your own garrisons and don't do anything, please. No, don't harm us. But at the same time, the PA leadership is under pressure to create this internal antagonism within Palestinian society. Because one of the successes of, let's say, the counterinsurgency campaign is not only the military tactical battle that we spoke about, is not only the resistance, its ability to you know, sustain its capacity for resistance over time, but I think what is very central is this political fight happening within the Palestinian society. And in, in that sense, the Israelis want some sort of, uh, want the internal antagonisms within Palestinian society to surface and become even more uh, um, um, more violent, um, taking away the pressure from the enmity towards Israel and directing it towards the enmity within, between the PA and the resistance fighters. Unfortunately, that's part of the process that we're seeing. That's part of how things are rolling. There's still a lot of uh, consciousness around avoiding any form of internal uh, fights, at least uh, in terms of, you know, gun battles or, or fighting. But I think this is the situation of the PA when it comes to dealing with uh, the resistance in Janine and also the larger or wider Palestinian society. So, yeah. And John, you had mentioned earlier um, uh, the relationship between uh, the PA and the availability of weapons. Um, can you Talk a little bit about that. Explain that further. Yeah, well, Janine's a different case um, than most of the West Bank. It's not part of the Dayton, the Keith Dayton army that's set up to create the Palestinian security force. In a lot of cases, um, the PA fighters in Janine are the Al-Aqsa Martyrs Brigades who were demobilized in a deal in the, like, what was it, like early 2010s um, uh, that included a lot of of people from the Al-Aqsa Martyrs Brigades that um, basically, yeah, were not, uh, didn't believe themselves to be as openly part of the counterinsurgency war as the sort of like Keith Dayton's like new men, as he called them. Um, but it was more of a traditional demobilization of an armed group and an integration into the security force. Um, so historically in Janine, um, that, the access to weapons from the PA, particularly at the beginning of the Second Intifada, played a critical role in the, the uprising. Uh, the PA played two critical roles in that by originally sharing their weapons if they weren't going to fight, and then, of course, later releasing 
um, the people that Arif the fighters that Arafat had in jail that were significant elements of the of the second intifada, the Islamic Jihad fighters, the Qassam fighters. Um, and so Janine is complicated in the way that they treat the PA. The, the PA security forces attack the PA political forces and burn their offices in Janine. Um, when Arafat um, and Saib Arakat came to visit Janine after the 2002 invasion, they were, their helicopter was shot at. They were cha basically chased out. Um, so that that sort of resistance is deep and the PA, you know, they were chanted out of the demonstrations um, in the or chanted out of the funerals, um, but they, they've been even stronger against the PA in that area. It was a no go zone for Arafat. Um, and so, yeah, the the, the fact that um, the weapons of the Second Intifada were in in significant measure, like were recalled by. Um, by Barguthi and set and spread out through the fighters, people that if you didn't want to fight, if you were a PA, you had a weapon, you didn't want to fight, you turned your weapon in and they redistributed their weapon, which is one of the reasons why Israel destroyed the Palestinian Authority in the early um, in the early Second Intifada. That was their first targets was all their police stations and all their uh, barracks and whatnot. Um, so yeah, it, it creates a, a, a an interesting dynamic in Janine because of the Al-Aqsa Martyrs Brigades who were who are a, a small but significant portion uh, of the armed rebellion in 2002. Part of it, Zakaria Zubaydi, um, was um, you know uh, one of the leaders of the resistance, um, and he he demobilized, and him and, and a number of his members demobilized. Um, they later reneged on that, um, of course, and then he was part of the um, that prison break, the the spoon and tunnel prison break. Um, but yeah, the PA. Um, it, it, I mean, for just for listeners, of course, I'm sure if they're listeners of this podcast that they know that the PA hasn't held elections in 20 years because they're not allowed to ha have elections because they'll lose, um, and so they've basically been banned by the international community. Um, with scare quotes, you know, from from running elections. Um, but yeah, that demobilization of the fighters um, was an interesting thing, because I think that there's a, at least a part of the anger um, of, of the stepping aside was um, was the belief that their PA security forces weren't as deep collaborators, I don't know if we're nuancing this too much, but that they weren't as deep collaborators as um, other elements of the PA security forces, which actually attempt to go into certain cities in the West Bank and take weapons from fighters. That does not happen in Janine. If anything, there's the argument would be made that the PA provided some sort of security like Netanyahu was asking for, which actually makes smuggling easier actually makes hiding fighters like abdul jawad said uh from elsewhere in the west bank come to janine to hide out um though for the for a resistance group to have that capacity to have almost like a safe haven is a critical element um so it, it's a complicated matter but there's no question that the pa has no legitimacy anywhere um, the the only um, minor nuance that you would put on it in Janine is the demobilization of the fighters and the use of the weapons um, of the PA in the 
uh, in the second intifada. And you can see just in the in the fighters, like in their jihadi videos and their promotional videos, you can see them all standing with their weaponry. They all have you know, the most updated weaponry, they have the most, um, you know, there there was a lot of weapons in the Janine camp. And if eight or 12 or what I saw was none um, were taken, then there's still a lot of weapons in Janine and the success of the operation, um, you know, if it further alienated the PA, if they didn't capture the guns, uh, if their fighters understand how hard the fight is if they do ever actually attempt to go into the camp it's difficult to see um to, to see those as a, a, any kind of a success and netanyahu even said that uh they the, the military may need to return to janine um uh, you know many people have been saying that this was one of the operations that are known as like mowing the lawn um, trying, you know, what, which they do in Gaza um, repeatedly. Um, what do you think the next operation uh, could look like uh, in Janine? And how do you think um, the brigades inside the refugee camp, especially, um, would, uh, you know, would, would change their tactics, if at all? Um, the question is for me or? Yeah. Uh, yeah. So in, in essence, I think the Israelis have, you know, two options, either to do more of the same, which is what they've done right now, which is a large scale military operation like the one before. But this time they would actually be willing to choke the resistance, go to close to close combat, risk, you know, risk the um, being uh, killed um, in battle. Uh, risk being entrapped in a uh, ambush like what happened 20 years ago, which is something that actually hovers around the design of this operation. Yeah, it's it's like also Israelis remember this as a painful memory, and that's why they're also avoidant of of the battle itself. So they have this option. They have the option of using air power, which is you know um, you direct your firepower without risking anything. Um, from a distance, it needs accurate intelligence. It needs, you know, um, a sense of uh, where uh, any fighter is at any moment. Uh, it needs that type of engagement. Or the other, or the third option that has been on the on on the, on the ground in the past two years was the special forces, the small units that come in. They surround a specific cell. They they kill this cell, but then you have like a small backup. Uh, of infantry coming in and also supporting this operation, um, what John explained a bit earlier. So these are the three ma major options. I'm not sure what the Israelis will choose in terms of how they will operate. And I'm not sure how the resistance will actually react. But I do think that the people, um, you know, learning the lesson of the, uh, of, of the, the current um, battle, of the current engagement would be significant for both sides of who can actually maintain this capacity of resistance. But I think one of the basic elements of what's happening is also that now resistance, at least in Janine, is becoming a much more uh, attractive uh, enterprise for a lot of young Palestinians. Every success that the resistance has it can regenerate this hope among the new generation, but also older generations. 
and can actually increase its recruits, increase and expand its uh, presence, whether it's in the refugee camp or in the Janine area. Uh, because I, I, we have to mention that we're focusing a lot about the Janine refugee camp, but it's also important to 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 place you know the Janine uh, rural areas and the Janine city as part of what's happening in the refugee camp. Because a lot of the fighters are also from the surrounding areas and have a good relationship with the people within the camp. So there's this give and take between the rural areas of Janine and the Janine refugee camp. Janine refugee camp is the place where people basically are concentrated, condensed, where you can have a self-defense zone where the fighters primarily may be turned to in, in, in the case of invasion or they spread out. I'm not sure. I don't really have any kind of ground analysis on this specific part, what they do actually in the in terms of the invasion. But at least in many instances, um, this is not only an enterprise within the camp. It's a it's a it's it, it also engulfs the whole rural areas and Janine City uh, as well, because I think I, just one last point I was. I basically went off ramp, but you know, uh, one last point. I think one of there's no legitimacy for the PA. That's true, but the PA um, currently holds one component of power, ideological power, which is the sense of loss that people are investing in sustain. You no, know? what I mean by it is that uh, the Palestinian people in many cases don't have a very clear picture of what an alternative to the PA economically and socially would be. And that's what sustains it. You know? it's, it's the lack of alternative. It's this dystopic image of what would happen if the PA uh, breaks down, especially, specifically on, in terms of the middle class and the upper classes in, in, in the West Bank, uh, which are fearful of this kind of situation. So the PA has this power of saying we're the only ones in town, we're the only ones that can provide you with economic security, we're the only ones that can provide you with a, a sense of economic grounding uh, to relieve some of the anxiety of being under a settler colonial uh, regime in a sense of this economic persistence. And and uh, and that's, that's a very, of course, uh, self-destructive position in the long term. And it might lead to the Palestinian people paying the price in the medium run or the long run, especially specifically in the West Bank. But it's one that is still pertinent to what's going on in the West Bank right now. So the resistance and its success in Janine, what it's doing, it's kind of shattering this kind of narrative, this melancholic, this uh, defeatist uh, narrative. It's kind of saying, we can do it. Look at the Israelis, they, don't, they even fear to engage us. Um, if if the battle is not, uh, you know, 100% guaranteed to not result in a soldier's death, we're not going to engage on it. They're not as strong as you believe that they are. And we're here and we're going to stay here and we're powerful and we're building and we're creating and we're experimenting with new methods and tactics. And we're going to continue to do that. And we're going to maintain our capacity to resist. And that's, I think, the basic important political message that the resistance is sending, despite its playing with death and martyrdom, that it's actually a message of hope. So that's my that's my take, at least also on that dynamic. And that's one of the important, at least, outcomes of, of the Battle of Janine, the current one. Yeah, I think that's really important. I mean, I think that's really the main reason for the successes of Palestinian armed resistance is that it is 
is completely counter to the narrative in the West that it's a sort of cult of death and all this kind of stuff. Um, that it is a message of hope. As I think that's a really good way to put it. That it, people are hoping for freedom. It does. It, I mean, it, that's what it comes down to. You know. The fighters are extremely popular. There's no other way to say it. And for people who who don't have the experience on the ground seeing it, um, it it's it's a remarkable. The depth of it is remarkable from house to house. Um, the support, the ability for the fighters to move from house to house. I mean, you just saw little things like when they were the fighters moved from house to house and 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 ate the food in one of the houses, and they leave leave apology notes. You know, they um, the the celebration after um, you know people come out of their house immediately, all generations, all ages, um, all factions. You know, this idea. You know people always kind of talk about Palestine as really factionalized. In Janine, that's not the case at all. The fighters fight under the same banner. As we said, we've been calling them the Janine Brigades. They're Islamic Jihad, Qassam, Al-Aqsa Martyrs Brigades. Uh, they're not um, sectarian in that nature when it comes to um, the organization of the fight. And the popularity um, and, and endurance of the popularity um, for resistance tactics of all types is deep in Palestinian society. So these aren't these aren't people on the fringes carrying out, uh, you know, violent action when uh, other people are saying, you know, we should be marching in the streets or, you know, having peaceful demonstrations. Everybody in Palestine understands that the peaceful demonstrations end up as massacres uh, and that they need um, they need the resistance to to make their communities safe, to make it hard for Israeli armor to come rolling down your street and traumatize your children and destroy your infrastructure and take your jobs and turn off your water and your electricity um, you know, shut the bakeries, encircle the town, like all of these things are, are real tangible living experiences that people have. And the resistance, um, you know, yeah, as Abdul Jawad said, uh, offers hope. It, it offers, but not hope in a like um, utopian way, I, I hope in a like practical, like yesterday they were coming here with death squads and nobody in Janine thinks the death squad's coming tonight. You know, um, that that's that those are victories within the population as well. Um, they're, they're tangible things that make it um, harder for the Israelis to destroy Palestinian ways of life in all various ways. I agree. And I just wanted to also like, um, um, I think, yeah, it is this desire, this deep desire of freedom. But, you know, a fighter, you know, he turns towards death, you know, because most fighters, when they start fighting, they know they're ultimately doomed men in most cases. No, they're either going to prison or they're, you know, going to be martyred. But they're also in this resistance. This is the position of the resistance now in Janine and Nablus and other places is that we know that we're doomed. We turn toward death and we don't like death. We're going to expand as much as possible our life as people who are turning towards death. And that's what provides them with this power within Palestinian society. Because at the one hand, they're not afraid of death. They're not afraid of the Israeli intelligence officer threatening them. They're not afraid of the Israeli military coming in. 
and they're not afraid of death itself, but they're trying to expand their life in this liminal zone, if you want to call it, you know, and engaging with the military and being serious about it. So this is not a tragic battle, but no, like it's not trying, they're not trying to be the, the tragic hero, the one who fights a losing battle, but yet, you know, fights it. They're actually trying to build, you know, successful tactics. They're trying to maneuver with, with whatever capacity they have, uh, maneuver uh, around Israeli movements, uh, engage in from position of, you know, closeness to the Israeli military, engage or hide it out if it's better to hide it out. So they're actually trying to preserve this capacity to resist and trying to maintain it and not only maintain it to actually expand on it. And that's what makes it significant is that there's a deep desire here for an actual military uh, battle that enables a symbolic political uh, success and that message of hope to actually truly spread because the military battle is the condition for that message of hope. Without it, there's no message of hope. The success itself is the message of hope. So yeah, that's that's what I just wanted to say. I think that's a, a good place to leave it. Uh, that's the voice yeah. of Abdel Jawad Omar. He is a lecturer at uh, Bidrzeit University in the West Bank. Uh, and John Elmer, he's a journalist and researcher and my co-host over at the Brief podcast. Um, John Abdel Jawad, thank you so much for being with us. And uh, we'll have you back on very soon. Thanks. Thanks, Nora. Good to meet you, Abdel Jawad. Yeah, you too, John. That was great. <laughs> Thanks for watching this video. Please subscribe to our YouTube channel. Hit like, leave a comment. These engagements help us with the YouTube algorithm and it helps us to get around Silicon Valley censorship as much as possible. It does make a difference. You can also support our journalism by going to electronicintifada.net and clicking on donate now. Thank you.